Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine and today I am joined by Alex Stewart. Hello. 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 How are you? I'm all right. Good. Yeah, not bad. Uh, Today's episode is a a sort of sensible transfers episode. So for people who have been listening over the summer, we've been talking about uh, clubs and areas on the pitch where they may require transfers and then players that might fit into those roles. And Alex has been doing uh, the research in terms of the the scouting, I suppose we could call it, video scouting, uh, in terms of trying to find people to fill those roles. Today's video, it does fit into that category, but it's slightly tweaked, isn't it? We've asked for more general questions from viewers who kindly uh, sent in hundreds, of which we've picked seven. seven. Eight. (laughs) Um, And Alex, you picked these questions because they, uh, in some ways, relate to the sensible transfers theme. They might be a little bit broader. Yeah. Um, they are more, I think, in some ways about, with one or two exceptions, they're more about the sort of strategy and thinking that that maybe goes into why transfers occur and, and some sort of nice, deeper background questions rather than just necessarily picking players for, for teams, although there is one of those in there. Okay, and we say that because I don't want anyone to shout at me because this <laughs> has right, been missold. It's not a sensible transfers podcast. Exactly. It's quite difficult to sell this one, so you may be listening to it. The, 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 the title may be Sensible Transfers, so sort of. Questions, sort of. <laughs> but please don't shout at me because I, you know, I'm, I'm weak. Uh, also, forgive me for this, but we don't normally do personal requests, but my mother's been in touch. <laughs> My mother, my mother's been in touch, Alex. You've never met her, have you? She's very fond of you. Um, but my mother's been in touch. Uh, mi madre. I'm talking about mi madre because she is doing a coastal marathon walk of 26.2 miles. That's the length of a marathon. She did a half marathon about a year or two ago, um, and she's doing it in support of. I know she works as an audiologist assistant for the Glanfluid Audiology Voluntary Support Service, which is a, a team of people who I believe go into uh, homes on a voluntary basis to assist people who need uh, hearing aids or uh, hearing aid services or just uh, assistance in that regard. I'm going to read now from the Just Giving page. Yes, that's right. I'm asking you to Just Giving. If you know anyone with a hearing uh, with hearing loss, you'll know how isolating it can be at times, especially if they experience problems with their hearing aids and are unable to get to their local hospital for assistance. The volunteer-led drop-in service provides a friendly, non-establishment presence. I always think of you when I say non-establishment, Alex, although, of course, you are a member of the establishment. Non-establishment presence for hearing aid users and their families, friends and carers who often find it difficult to access audiology services. This service also provides practical and social support within a relaxed and informal environment. And uh, they're looking to raise more funds as they did a couple of years ago uh, to assist uh, in the voluntary process. And this is quite special for my mother, I would say, because five years ago she was diagnosed with the big C. She had cancer, Alex. Did you know that? I did, Yeah, because yes. I've told you before. And uh, her prognosis wasn't great, guys, but she's fine now, I think. I think she's fine. And uh, in, well, the end of this year, 2019, she will have been in remission for five years, which anyone who has had cancer or who has family members or friends who've had cancer know that's quite a big uh, milestone as part of the road to recovery. So for her, uh, before, you know, the five-year remission date to be walking a marathon is something that neither of us probably would have expected her to be doing, uh, you know five years ago so it's a big personal achievement as well and it's a cause close to her heart so i've put a link in the description of this podcast on youtube and also on the audio things if you have a little bit of spare change if you understand uh, what it's like to know people uh, who have uh, hearing issues or even if you're just a sympathetic and friendly person with uh, you know a little bit of loose change rolling around at the bottom of the bank account and you feel yourself thinking, I'd love to help Joe's mum. Joe's mum, Debbie, I'd love to help Joe's mum. Please do. Uh, the link is in the description. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much. Hope you can, hope some of you can uh, assist there. That would be lovely. Um, also, my granddad's home from hospital. Good news. That's great. He's just texted me now saying, on the way home. He likes to keep them short. I think because he's, uh, he's got slow fingers. Back to uh, the podcast now. The first question we have, I believe, is from Tom. It is from Tom. Tom, thank you for sending this question in. Recently, this is Tom talking now. It's not my mother. It's not me. 
is Tom. Tom says, Recently, big money signings for largely unproven youth like Vinicius Jr. and João Felix are becoming more and more common. I think we might challenge that a little bit, but is it wiser to take a gamble on these talents by spending big, or is it better to focus on developing homegrown talent but risk missing out on the next Neymar or Ronaldinho? I'm surprised he didn't put Ronaldo in there because Ronaldo I guess, is probably the best example of... He wasn't, he wasn't spending big, for example, but he was the one to, to not miss out on given that Messi didn't move anywhere, right? Yeah, so the, the first point to make, as you said, is that, that there's, there's a, a slight question mark whether around, around whether it's happening more frequently. It kind of is. Is it? Well, so because you also you did some a bit of research for this, and you sent me a uh, yeah an email with a lot of things. Uh, would you mind if I just read through some of them? Well, I put them into date order now. Oh, that's yeah, that's I much more useful. Before. Why don't you read? Why don't you read through them? <laughs> so, in two thousand and one, uh, Javier Saviola, who fans of Football Manager will remember fondly, uh, moved from River Plate to Barca for twenty five million. Antonio Cassano moved from Bari to Roma for twenty million. Uh-huh. Rooney in 2004 was a big money teenage transfer. Sergio Ramos the year after, Sevilla to Real Madrid. Hold on though, can, can I stop you there for a moment? Can we say, I know Rooney was a teenager. Yes. But can we really say that Rooney was a teenager? Because what he was doing at the time, and this in, in a way is mirrored, I have to, I've had to write something for a script recently, which is about long-term fatigue and, and recovery. Right. Rooney's a good example of someone who, when he reached 30, deteriorated because he was playing at a much higher level, at a much younger age. He wasn't a typical teenager, was he? At 16, he was one of the, already one of the best strikers in the league. I don't think at 16, he was already one of the best strikers in the league. But he scored a really, he scored he that scored really good goal. He really great goal Do you remember that goal Arsenal. that he scored that yeah. was really good? It was. It yeah. was a great goal. But uh, yes, I mean, it, it's questionable to what degree these teenagers are unproven. Mm. I think there's a little bit of, of bias possibly in terms of the idea that players coming from South America are, are unproven in some regard. Am I remembering um, that wrongly then? Was Wayne Rooney not, not considered, not totally proven, but he was he not considered a fairly safe bet when Man United bought him. Fairly safe? Because he looked to, as, as I remember, but, he looked to everyone in the league as like the, a proper gem. Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't, I don't think it was difficult to see his potential there. Yeah. But as with, and there's a question later on that we'll come to, it, it is always difficult to assess just how younger talents will develop, particularly when by default it's almost certain that there's quite a small sample size of games to yeah. go on, which is why, for example, if a player explodes out during a you know an under seventeens, under eighteens tournament, they might look spectacular in that context. Yeah, but it's not necessarily the wisest move to go for them. Mm. Um, so you know, I, th- I think there's from from about two thousand and thirteen onwards, where you had Marquinhos moving to PSG uh, and you had Lucas Moura moving to PSG as well. Um, there's there's been a general kind of uplift in teenagers going for relatively big money. Not huge, but and also taking into account inflation, right? Yes, not huge up until really Kylian Mbappe in 2018. Um, again, very hard to argue yeah. that he's unproven at that point. And also, we must consider that the general the, market's gone a bit mad. The prices go insane. Yeah. Near and after the date of the Premier League's new TV deal, well, I know they're not related to the Premier League. I'm yes. saying, but the, the impact that that had on the global market, and also the increase yes. in the other domestic, um, the other domestic TV le- uh, bills going up. Yeah, and I think this is the I think this is the key point to make with this question before we come onto a, another element of the answer, is that actually what's happened is that teenagers who show great potential have always gone for relatively big money. The difference is that the amount of money has now gone up astronomically. Yeah. And so João Felix moving for 126 million, Matthias de Licht, who again, you can't call him unproven, but 75 million for a you know, that makes him one of the most most expensive defenders of all time. He's nineteen. And he's only nineteen. So Can I also throw this into the into the works? Mm. What examples are there, with the exception of Neymar and maybe Coutinho? What examples are there since Paul Pogba of the biggest and best players in the world changing clubs? 
Because there's not that many. I mean, you can't really count Ronaldo because he was already 32 or 33 at the point of his transfer to Juventus. And I'm th- if I'm thinking back to a time sort of pre the insane inflation of the market, yeah. the figures that we're now looking at for players, I mean, the Jean Felix one, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jean Felix figure is, is hard to defend in, in any uh, capacity. <laughs> but if there were a player who had reached his ceiling, who was 26 years old, and he was being transferred between two clubs, is it, not, is it not feasible that that transfer could be twice as or three times as expensive? It, I mean, it's impossible to say. Because they're being priced out of moves because, at the very top level, right? Well, yes. So for a start, in Spain, you have um, release clauses, mm. which can be prohibitively expensive. Yeah. You know, 800 million euro or something as a release clause. So that's, that is effectively pricing somebody out of a move to a degree. I mean, yeah. the flip side with Spanish transfers is uh, Simon Harrison made the point when he was here for the La Liga podcast is that if those release clauses are set very low, obviously that's hugely advantageous to the buying club. Yeah. Uh, and I think clubs are becoming wiser to that. But you're right. I mean, it's it's very difficult to think of players that are in the sort of, and we're talking about a very small number of players anyway, but <clears throat> you're, you're sort of Ballon d'Or nominee style players. Yeah. Um, they've not been moving them out much recently. No. So, you know, Bayern have had... Robin Ribery and Lewandowski for a good period of time. Um, Real Madrid have had Tony Kroos, Luka Modric. They've yeah. been there for quite some time. Um, even Benzema's been there a while. Neymar's you know. the only real example. And Coutinho from Liverpool to Barcelona well, I, as well. I mean, but... I wouldn't put Coutinho in that bracket, no. personally. I'm just thinking about big money transfers. Yeah. Um, I'm probably missing some. Well, I, yeah, we probably are. And I'm sure we'll get helpful comments to point that out. But I, I, I think that is a generally sensible point is that were the big players moving before though to take our own uh, logic uh, this question questioning whether it's actually changed were those were the players we're talking about now were they moving very much before anyway uh, how th- old was Rio Ferdinand when he moved to Man United from Leeds like mid-twenties yeah okay maybe a little younger yeah um, I think it, it's difficult I think there's there's probably this hegemony of, of European super clubs now who can command who can a command the, the the respect and the attention of that small coterie of world class players who can also afford to pay them, and I think crucially can provide an infrastructure in which those players will succeed. And you know, you you don't get to the top of a profession generally speaking unless you're extremely committed to it, and you you know, there's a degree of personal drive there as well. Yeah. So if you're a you know a, a Luka Modric or a Cristiano Ronaldo or a Paul Pogba you want to go somewhere where there's a likelihood that the rest of that team will support you to achieve your personal goals, which will partly be winning championships with the club, mm-hmm. but will also be becoming a world-class player or cementing your reputation as a world-class player. That's why Messi's never moved, mm. because Messi had all of that or has all of that at Barcelona, and he is also the main man there. Why leave? Why leave? You know, it's it's even if someone could pay enough money to prize him away from Barcelona, which yeah. is obviously very questionable. Um, there's no reason for him to go because yeah. he's the man there. Can I take this on, before we come back to answer Tom's question, can I take this on a slight tangent? Uh, this, and this is not a formulated thought, so, you know, criticism welcome. But I've been thinking about Christian Eriksen. And I've been thinking about Christian Eriksen since we made a video uh, with uh, with Ben Jacobs a while ago about corners, right? Christian Eriksen is a player, perhaps alongside Dele Alli, not so much Harry Kane because of his allegiance to, to, to Tottenham, but is a player who many people would have considered would have left Spurs by now, or was perhaps, from an outside perspective, it looked like he was always assessing his options, you know, and had an idea of where he might, a club he might move to next. It seems like in, in the way that the market is currently structured <clears throat> and with the inflating prices, that Christian Eriksen is depending on your perspective, potentially a victim or not, if you're a Spurs fan, of of, this, of the current situation. Where can he go? What club can afford to, to pay for him at the current inflated rate, given the moves that are happening elsewhere? And João Felix just, this is why we talk about the impact on the market. This is why when we say the Premier League TV deal, not just specific to Premier League clubs, the impact on the European market is insane. And when a, when a transfer like the João Felix one happens to Atletico Madrid for that much money... Daniel Levy's going to be looking at that and all the other perfect examples of, of business which has taken place over the last year or two 
And to any potential suitor to Christian Eriksen, he's going to say, look, Christian Eriksen, he's in his prime. He's a brilliant player. He would make most teams better. I want this much money for him. And that narrows the potential suitors to a very small handful of clubs, all of whom are in situations where they might not, it might not now be worth spending the money on a player like Christian Eriksen, but it might, to go back to Tom's point, be worth spending that much money on a player who's six years younger and might have a higher ceiling, or yes. they might have him for longer. And so it's an... It, 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 as I said, it's a kind of it's not particularly formulated thought. There's no research behind what I've just said, but just from a casual uh, observer's perspective, it seems like the the market has shifted significantly and is constraining different sorts of players than it was before, and is alleviating different sorts of players than it was before. Do you think that's fair? Intuitively, that makes sense. Uh, I think you're right that whether or not that's right, <laughs> it's no, different. Th- that that's fair. But I, I mean, I think okay. If you're looking at the pricing of players, obviously the requirement of a club to generate revenue through player sales is a factor. So Spurs might be in a position currently to say to us, Ericsson is worth 80 million. Yeah. However, <clears throat> if La Celso comes through, if Dybala comes through, they get tied into relatively big wages. I know Tottenham's wage structure is yeah. what it is, but then Spurs might think, mm, actually, now we've got a mixture of players that can come in and yeah. do various aspects of that role. And also we now need to make some money back. Actually, yeah. he can go for 60. Imagine Dybala, by the way. Right. Imagine, well, imagine that. Yeah. It'd be exciting, wouldn't it? Uh, I guess. Um, if you, this, I think this is why towards the end of the window, things get a bit more frenzied. It's as much the imperative that clubs have to sell certain players because the squads become bloated, because of registration rules, because they need to make money back. And that's when you see that kind of horse trading of, of the, the value of players going up and down based on how much competition there is. The, the fact is that a player is worth what somebody else is prepared to pay for them. Mm. But at the same time, like you say, that can be affected by a variety of forces completely external to that particular deal. Um, and I think in that regard, yes, it has created a circumstance where there's a certain coterie of players. And I would say Ericsson's maybe one or two bands below the kind of the very small Ballon d'Or group, but he is up there. You know, he's an extremely good player. He's proven himself in one of Europe's top five leagues for a considerable period of time. And effectively, there is now a small number of clubs that can afford not only his transfer fee, but also the wages that he would expect to command if he moved. Mm. And I think in some ways, and this is where Arsenal is an interesting case in point, wages are as much of a problem as transfer fees. Um, Look at Gareth Bale sitting at Real Madrid. However you view that situation and how he's been treated... He's on a contract that uh, Jonathan Wilson did a good piece in The Guardian about it, um, where, you know, it's basically saying who can afford him except for a very small number of people. Yeah. So in, 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 in Gareth Bale's case, uh, in locations that's that might be less desirable to him as well. China. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of it's one of those oddities where the market is eating it, itself. It's in a, yeah, it's in a state of kind of feverous intensity and, mm. and and some clubs now will look at I think it's interesting as well that there's there's probably a thing about looking at uh, say a club like Ajax who's developed young talent and and looking maybe either to to poach the work the good work that's been done by them and you look at Delic going and Frankie Dion going as well um, but also and this is this is sort of the second element um, to Tom's question uh, I've been reading a book by uh, 21st Club, the the football consultancy. Um, it's the the second one of the two collections that they've put out based on blog posts. There's one here, actually. Uh, yeah, there's one there. So I've got the other one. The other one's in my bag. Oh, God, I'm dropping things everywhere, guys. <laughs> Look at this. I'm just going to show it to the camera for right. anyone who might be interested. And, and this is the other one. Yep. And you can see this one and then Alex's one. Yeah, you see, I've learned how to hold things in front of a camera. Yeah. Um, so these these are really interesting books. I, I'd recommend them um, to people who want sort of short, sharp conversation point mm. or thought starters. What's yours called? This is called Changing the Conversation. Same, but this is oh. volume two that I've got. So anyway, they make a point that um, recently uh, there's been a uh, quite a number of transfers that have occurred, particularly with younger players, 
where they've been at a club for one season only. Um, a good example, for example, is Osman Dembele, who was only at uh, Borussia Dortmund for a season before he was bought by Barcelona. And these are often younger players. They're often seen as prospects. They're often coming from a good but not great team into a very good but maybe not quite great team and then being bought by someone bigger. And the point that 21st Club makes is that, that this is a fear of missing out. That FOMO. Yes, FOMO, exactly. FOMO, that's um, right. Sorry. As clubs look to sign players for, this is a quotation, by the way, as clubs look to sign players for big fees based on less evidence than before, i.e. based on one season at the top level rather than two, in case their rivals swoop. So that's clearly, for example, the Jao Felix thing. You know, Jao Felix is not worth 126 million unless part of the value there is that someone else doesn't get him. Mm. And that's why a team like Atletico Madrid is prepared to come in and pay that kind of money. It's as much a preventative measure to stop a player of that potential quality going to Barcelona or Real Madrid in this instance, as it is getting a player that readily slots into the first team and performs at a high level, mm. which João Felix may be able to do or may not be able to do. And that, of course, remains to be seen. So I think, yes, I think that to a degree, I think Tom maybe is underestimating the, the degree to which teenagers have been picked up for big transfer fees in the past. But, but it's also worth saying that partly because of the escalation and the valuation of players generally... Market forces, man. ...that a prospect, a high-ceiling prospect, is now worth considerably more, partly because there are difficulties in the liquidity of the market for older players mm. and partly because amongst a top tranche of clubs, there's enough money moving around that they could sweep in and steal that player otherwise. Also, if you just look at the smart movers, uh, you know, Manchester City didn't spend millions of pounds on their Bond villain academy complex uh, because they wanted to be nice. No, well, that's going to save them a lot of money in the future and potentially yeah. make them a lot of money. And, as well. and that's very smart. And it's interesting that in this list of 20 plus players that I've got, Manchester City only crop up once and they paid 27 million for Gabriel Jesus from Palmeiras back in 2017, which arguably is really good value. Yeah. I don't think anyone would argue with that now. No. So. Manchester United, Real Madrid, they're the ones who've spent a lot. PSG a couple of times, well, PSG three times. So, you know, it's, I, I think City are probably inclined to look for development and the use of the loan system a bit more than they are likely to spend big money. And, and also Guardiola likes players who've got a little bit more experience, I would say. Okay, Tom, I hope that satisfied your first for additional knowledge. What we've done there, though, is what we normally do. And we've talked for quite a long time about one question. So uh, uh... I'll, be, I'll be quicker on the next one. <laughs> but that's because you went off on your peroration about... I know, I can't help value. it. I'm a tangent so... man. Um, okay. The next question is I'll be from... brutally brief on this. It's from Gerard Ray, Bournemouth. Basically, goalkeeper or anyone on the back line, aside from Ake, they need help especially at fullback, in my opinion. So this is a pretty straightforward, sensible transfers question. Uh, and uh, and Jared here is asking for a goalkeeper or any defender, aside from Ake, they need help. Please help them. I'll help them. So a couple of things that are interesting to me about this are that Bournemouth have a pretty set way of conducting their transfer business. By and large, Eddie Howe doesn't like exotic players, shall we say. He likes players who have proven worth in the championship or in the lower reaches of the Premier League. Um, he has a... a bit like Sean Dyche. Yeah, not not too dissimilar. You know, he, he likes somebody who is familiar with the English game and who has got minutes behind them in, in the English setup and therefore is not as much of a punt necessarily. Um, so he has just signed Lloyd Kelly from Bristol City. Um for I think around nine to eleven million, so I can't remember exactly what it is. Lloyd Kelly does sound like the name of an accountant, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, maybe a little. Lloyd bit. Kelly and Co. I'm not entirely convinced by this one, but mm. we shall see. Who are you? Um, who am I compared to? But he's a left back. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got one suggestion for a goalkeeper. Uh, I think Sam Johnston, ex-Man United, currently West Bromwich Albion, uh, would be a good pickup for them in goal. He's an upgrade on who they've got currently. 
uh, I would suggest. But also Bournemouth have got a very good young Irish goalkeeper, Mark Travers, um, who's made his debut, I think, for the Republic of Ireland side now. So I would be looking at somebody who's a kind of <clears throat> one to two year stopgap, who's mm. better than what they've currently got, but it can be displaced by Travers in due course. Can pay, pave the way for Travers, who That's, incidentally sounds like your friend, teenage friend at the skate park, Travers. Mark Travers. He yeah. very much does, he doesn't does. he, with his Vans trainers. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he's 26. Uh, he could probably be got for less than 10 million. Um, so I would say that would be a decent bit of business. Okay. Right backs, um, again, looking in the championship, <laughs> Connor Roberts at Swansea looks really nice. Um He's, but what about his football? Uh, <laughs> 7.6 interceptions. Uh, he doesn't dribble too much, um, but he's got very good passing. He's quite dynamic, goes on the overlap. Fullbacks are really important to the way that Eddie Howe plays. Um, mm. It's also a younger lad, Jaden Bogle at Derby, um, who is probably more aggressive going forwards, carries the ball a lot more, but is not quite as good at passing. Uh -huh. They're both defensively reasonable. I would say Roberts is stronger defensively than than Bogle, but Bogle's got that kind of um, slight Max Aaron thing going on where it's, you know, very aggressive going forwards a lot. So they're, they're both the sorts of players that I would expect. Roberts, yeah. I think, will quite possibly be picked up by a, a lower kind of Premier League side in the next year or so. Um, and yeah, that, that that's who I would say for Bournemouth. This is never... This podcast is supported by The Economist. Now, Alex, did you know that The Economist is about far more than just economics and finance? Yes, I know that you did know that. I yes, I've already told you this before. Many mm. times. But for listeners who might have not heard us talk about this before, they might not know that The Economist is also about world politics, business, yeah. Mm. also science, technology, the arts, and sport. And sport. And sport. I thought it was even sport. You're right, it says even sport. Yeah. 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 It really denigrates us, that <laughs> bit. Mm. But The Economist helps readers prepare for what's going on in the world around them. And it does that by sifting through the noise and focusing on the essential information that tells the real story. Now, we've found one uh, that we would like to talk about which is an interesting story. And it does sift through some noise, but not, not so much in the kind of the rah, rah, rah way, but in the, oh, maybe you didn't see this when you looked the first time way, with data. Mm. Mm? And a graph. It's uh, a, a graph I can't understand because okay, it's too fine. complex even for me. Great. Uh, so this is from the 19th of January uh, of this year, and the uh, title of the article is Managers in Football Matter Much Less Than Most Fans Think. Mm. Um, so there's that nice kind of myth-busting thing going on there. Um, the essential premise of it, and I, you know, the article is, is quite long and complicated, so to make it uh, quickly explained, they've gone through a lot of data, they've looked at how teams perform uh, under specific managers and when there have been changes of managers um, they look at uh, they weight that by the relative strength of teams in the league and the upshot is that managers make less of a difference than one might expect certainly make less of a difference than individual players do mm. um, and therefore clubs may be spend more money or time or emphasis on a transition between managers than they perhaps should. And actually, if you stuck rather than twisted, you'd probably be fine in most instances anyway. Did you know this before reading this article? Um, Do you think I knew this before I I'm read I'm pretty this sure article? you didn't. I didn't. Know. I did, but... So what you're saying is that were I to read The Economist more regularly, I could hold my own in a very boring conversation with you about the football data... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, basically. Or a number yeah. of incredibly interesting conversations about world politics, science, arts, the like. The reason that I'm excited to work in this partnership is because, and some listeners will know this, I find many things to be much more interesting than football. Than football. And The yeah. Economist provides all of those things yeah. whilst allowing me to learn a few little tidbits they're going to help me look cool and sound good on the podcast. Well, I, well, I, as you know, and as as regular <laughs> viewers slash listeners will know, I did do my free trial yeah. um, with the number that you'll read out at some point. That um, would be texting TIFO to 78070. Which I did. If you're in the UK or Ireland. Yeah, so TIFO 78070. Um, mm. And then I got a nice phone call back from somebody and we had a little chat. And How I nice. 
Oh, he was lovely. Okay. Um, and I, I've, I've signed up for 12 weeks. Have <laughs> you actually? So, and then I'm he pretty said, sure they would have sent us some for free. Though. Yeah, pro- possibly. And he then, <laughs> he then said, um, so how did you know about this offer? Mm. And I explained that. Yeah, anyway. A very so, po-faced explanation. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, but listen, so, The Economist. So you can borrow my copy. It's the smart guide yeah. to the forces that are changing your world and mine. My, our world. Because we share the world. We do. Um, so if you've never stopped asking questions, which I feel like we haven't done yet. And we share it really closely sometimes. Yeah. Like too closely. Just this room. But, uh, and you do never stop asking questions. You know, namely, when is this thing happening? Why is the aircon on? It's <laughs> why, the winter. Why do I have to come back to mm. London again? Why are you eating yeah. when I'm here? Yeah. Things like this. Uh, so maybe The Economist would help me navigate those sorts of day-to-day issues, which really grate me down. I'm not sure The Economist would tackle why you shouldn't eat brownies when I'm sat next to you. No, but you can get a free copy if you text the word TIFO to 78070. That's TIFO to 78070. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of the podcast. The Economist has been going for 170 years. Hmm? Hmm? Okay. Uh, next up is a question from... Uh, Yak Sutak, or perhaps Jack Sutak, I'm not sure. Do you think that instead of positions in football, I know what you're going to answer to this, we should be talking about roles, seeing as how a central midfielder can mean anything from Kante to Pogba to Fellaini, for example, I think you're going to say yes to that. Um, What I've actually written in my notes here is absolutely yes. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, yes. Um... I think to me... It, it, I, I will just interrupt for yeah, a moment to say that there is a door alarm going off downstairs, which... Oh, it's stopped. Okay. Well, perfect timing. Sorry for the interruption. Do carry on. It's fine. But I hate that door, and I hate the people that own that door. Right. Please yes. continue. It's, it's the office below us. Directly below, below us. us. Yes. yes. It happens surprisingly and, uh, You know regularly. what? As soon as this is finished, I'm going to thump around like I do every time. Oh, uh, do you? No, I don't do that. Oh, okay. But I, I, in my head, you fantasize I about doing. I it. fantasize about just stamping a little bit about being passive aggressive, but you don't even actually do it to, to, that to the extent passive. that they wouldn't even notice that I was doing that. <laughs> so, heavy-footed man upstairs. Yeah. What could he be doing walking around? I'm trying to tell you to turn it off. Anyway, do you, continue you've been answering in London for too long. Jack's question. Um, absolutely yes. So, absolutely yes. Um the the profile of players I think is has always been less kind of clearly bracketable than might have been suggested by you know an old version of football manager. You're mm. a CM, you're a DM, that mm. kind of thing. Obviously, there are general areas of the pitch where people play. And the designation of that rough area, I think, is important. However, what I think you see in modern football is increasingly a variety of different skill sets. And again, there's a question that relates a little bit to this later on uh, to do with fullbacks. But there are clearly three or four different types of fullbacks now that you'll regularly see across the course of the modern game. With midfield positions, for example, to look at a defensive midfielder, you could have a defensive midfielder who is a sort of N'Golo Kante type, whose job is to harass, intercept, tackle. Adrissa Gay, for example, is, is another good one. Or you could have somebody who occupies exactly that same sort of role, positionally sat in front of a back four, but is an Andrea Pirlo. Or you could have someone like Leandro Paredes, who's kind of in the middle and, and is probably more of a passer than a a destroyer, but still has a kind of dual function. So I think the the key point to make here is, yes, roles, I would say, are more important. The reason for this is, is it goes back to stuff that we've talked about before in this, which is that if you're looking to recruit a player what you need to be thinking about is is a far more complex mixture of things than simply where they generally start on the pitch or where they generally stand in a defensive lineup. What you're looking at is what your team needs in that area of the pitch predicated on the style of football you play and the players you've got around you. And so for that reason, it's much easier to look at, say, a list of attributes Roughly divided by position, sure. Which might be categorised, for example, as an enforcer or a playmaker? Oh, no. So roles, maybe in roles types, yes. I mean, I I would be very confident that that professional clubs wouldn't use that kind of nomenclature that is very football managery. But at the same time, 
if you've got two sets or if you've got uh, uh, two defensive midfielders with two different sets of attributes, one of them might be considerably better at interceptions, better at, um, you know, pressures on the opposition. If you watch those players on video, you might see more aggressiveness. You might see greater positional awareness of where the opposition are and movement into passing lanes and shutting people off. That other player might have much weaker uh, defensive metrics, but what they're looking to do is to sit behind two sort of shuttling midfielders and play these long raking passes. So you'd see much more progressive passing. You'd see more passes to the final third. You'd probably see more through balls. Mm. And this is why I think for a start, you can look at players like that fellow in the Bordeaux reserves that I've harped on about a few times, Alexandre Morpé, who is listed as a centre-back, but he's five for eight. So he's never going to be a top-level centre-back. Um, but the way he passes the ball and the way he positions himself, he could be a deep-line playmaker. So there you come across somebody because you're looking at a set of attributes mm. and then thinking maybe he's not exactly right for what he's currently doing, but because of the style of player he is and what he is good at doing, we could move him somewhere else. And there are players of that kind of versatility where maybe you want to... So um, Nathan Ampadu. Mm -hmm. um, who's just gone on loan from Chelsea to RB Leipzig. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons Leipzig have taken him, although they do have quite a good first team squad in these positions, is they want someone who can cover at uh, at centre-back, mm. but also as a defensive midfielder. Mm -hmm. And he has a sufficient versatility to be able to do that. And a sufficient set, uh, you know, his metrics reflect that he's maybe not amazing at either of those things yet. And in due course, I think he'll probably become a defensive midfielder, but he can do all of it. And so, you know, that will have informed their decision on to take him on loan. So I think this is what you should be looking at when you're scouting for a player. You shouldn't just think, I want a defensive midfielder. Mm. Okay, well, the best defensive midfielder in the world is X. You want to think, my team currently requires somebody who is good at these five things and is comfortable playing anywhere between center back and central midfield because then they'll they'll roughly know what they're doing in that sort of position and then we go from there okay uh the next question is how from... am i doing time ways am i getting a little bit yeah, i think we're okay yeah we're good yeah. We've, we've got like 25 minutes left and we've oh. only got four questions left fantastic uh, i think that's right okay the next one is from eos here's a question why is santiago as i can't read from this far away i need my glasses asil uh, can as you say that askisabar i think askisabar or yeah okay why is santiago askisabar in the second division of german football with stuttgart genuinely curious as an argentinian a lot of us see him as our future number six, why didn't anyone go for him? Good question. Thank you for submitting it, Aos. Alex, uh, presumably you know who that person is. <laughs> yes, I do know yes. who that person is. Um, I am about a metre away from my screen, and okay. when I see an unfamiliar word or name, I cannot, my brain doesn't work. Right. Mm. Well, oh, that's unfortunate. Um, so he is... Actually, again, he's somebody who will be relatively familiar um, to people who played football manager. Um, he's a very uh, defensively minded defensive midfielder. So he is a kind of Javier Mascherano destroyer type of player. I like to hear that. These are, these are my favourite sorts what? of players. I'm fed up of the ones that are <laughs> kicking it upfield or yeah. playing. I don't want them to go near the ball. I want them to... to Get those legs, you know, get, yeah. the other, get the other one's legs. Hack the people down. Yeah. I mean, it, it's worth saying at the start that he's only going to be playing in the second division of German football because Stuttgart got relegated this season. Okay. Um, that, so, that's quite a big uh, caveat, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. Because he's only there. He's not even there yet. I mean, he's not even played. They in haven't the even started yet. there yet. No. He was a Bundesliga player. He was a Bundesliga but player. But I suppose the question would be then, why has no one picked him up over the summer? Yes. So far. So I, I, I messaged a guy called Sam Kelly, um, who's a, an expert on Argentine football. Part of that accountancy practice. Yes, the yes. same one. Kelly and Co. Kelly and, Kelly and Sons. Yes. He's the daddy. Okay. Uh, and he runs a podcast called Hand of Pod uh, on Oh, I Argentine know Hand football. of Pod. Yeah, yeah. That's he's, really good. It is, it is really good. Mm. Yes. And he's, he's great. So um, I asked him what his thoughts were from a kind of an Argentina perspective. Uh, he made some interesting points. Um, 
he's he's in contract with Stuttgart until 2023, and that's that's quite early. So there's probably mm. a prohibitive buyout there. Um, what's interesting is that he's made this point: when Argentina dominate possession in most of their matches, they don't need a destroyer. But Argentines still hang on to the idea that they do. And this is the kind of Diego Simeone, okay. Javier Mascherano it's a cultural style thing. of player. Yes. Um, as far as it relates to the football team, I mean. Right. He points out that probably means a six rather than a five because that's what defensive midfielders are in Argentina. Right. <clears throat> but Oh, a five is a defensive midfielder in Argentina? Uh, no, a six is. Oh, he's written six in the question. Sorry, five is, not five six. Is, That's yes. me getting confused because okay. I've, again, I've corrected my thing that I didn't correct you. Okay, just to clarify, a number five would be what we might consider a number six here in the UK. Right, so okay. a five is a defensive midfielder. Mm-hmm. So that, so one of the points that Sam is making is that actually... I guess maybe a while, Rio Ferdinand thought he was playing in Argentina. Why'd you do that? <laughs> <laughs> why, why? Oh, Christ. Okay, just carry on. Fine. Um... So part of the point there is that there's maybe a kind of bias in the sense of Argentine fans want that sort of player, but he's actually not necessarily what Argentina needs, particularly because Leandro Paredes has kind of started to make that role his own and is more of that sort of progressive passing type that that you don't seem to like very Mm, much. Get rid of them. In terms of how he did at Stuttgart, he actually did well. Um, he did get a ban for spitting towards the end of the season, which I think probably didn't help. We don't um, like that here. We don't like spitting. We also don't like when your team is slipping toward relegation, you not being available because you've done something yeah. really stupid and yeah. unpleasant. So that won't have helped. Um, but he is a better player than Bundesliga too, certainly. Um, maybe there are questions around his temperament, but if a team wants a kind of... He's someone that he's a bit like say Jefferson Lerma at Bournemouth. Like he does a certain kind of job really well. He's maybe a little bit volatile and a little bit likely to get booked, but he uh, he should get picked up by somebody if the length of the contract and Stuttgart's desire to bounce straight back into the Bundesliga, which is exactly what they'll be determined to do, um, doesn't put people off. Two answers to that question. hope they were both helpful. Yeah. Thank you, Sam Kelly, for your assistance on that. And thank you, Aos, for your question. Uh, the next question is from Alberto Diaz. With Zuma, with a Zuma return looking unlikely to Everton, is that true? Zuma and- that I don't actually know. Okay. I just sort of took it as... I yeah. mean, it, there are reasons well, why it wouldn't happen yeah. because Chelsea are obviously looking to hold on to people. So, okay. Well, forget that for now, but let's just say hypothetically were Zuma not available next season. Yeah. Uh, who should Everton be looking for when searching for Michael Keane's new central defensive partner? Right. So this this is a question that I really like because it it addresses a couple of things. The the first is defensive partnerships. And in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, but you know, there are other people who would share it, that what you want in your centre backs is kind of complementary style. So Keane is very good in the air, which is something that you would actually probably look for in all of your centre backs. But he is more of a passer. He's more likely to carry the ball forwards. Therefore, in that regard, you want somebody to balance that out. You want somebody who is more defensively sound, more of a stopper, more somebody who's going to throw their way into challenges, cover behind if uh, Keane carries the ball forwards and then loses it. It is interesting that you would probably, as a matter of preference, you'd look to have your more technical player on the left-hand side, usually, um, in an ideal world. Uh, and also why why partly because of the if you're able to to have a left-handed uh, left-handed left-footed player on the left side of a central defense it it opens up an area of the pitch from which longer oh. balls are less likely to occur so other players are you saying more technically capable are therefore more likely to be able to play with their wrong foot if they are right footed? Well that's also true. Yeah. Again, so if you're if you're looking at a central defensive partnership that by default has yeah. two right-footed players, you would want the more technically capable one on the left-hand side because they'd be more able to make up for that deficiency. Um I think it's interesting that actually if you look at if you basically just look at Europe's top five leagues percentage of defensive duels one, and then scale that down by age to players of 25 and younger, because you don't want to be buying someone who's really old and players who played 800 minutes or more. Yerry Mina, who is the incumbent partner 
to Michael Keane and Everton's central defensive pairing comes in fourth. So the answer there is actually Mm. Everton probably don't need to buy anybody in that position because it looks like, I mean, Yerry Mina's a, he's a little bit like... What's he bad at though? He's a bit flighty. He's maybe occasionally prone to pushing forwards too much or being a little bit rash in terms of his decision-making. But that's the kind of thing that you are more able to coach because you can then say, I mean, this is a back line that was constructed quite quickly. Um, And I think one of the areas that we'll see an improvement next season for Everton is their defensive organisation and shape. Um, Because that takes time. Because it takes time. It takes time to coach. And when you've got... And to learn and build relationships. With, I mean, the key to this question being about absolutely. the partnership. Yes. So so in that, um, if you take Seamus Coleman out of the equation, because he's been there forever, um, Pickford, uh, Keane, Mina, Zuma, Lucas Dean, they're all acquisitions within the last couple of seasons. Can I say as well, on a you know, tangent man here, uh, that retrospectively, I often think and find it amazing that Everton managed to hold on to both Seamus Coleman and Leighton Baines forever. For such a long time. Well, just forever. I mean, right. they, they, yeah. they, they, they are past the, both past their peaks now, both fantastic players, but there, yeah. there were seasons, probably, probably even up to six seasons in a row, where every summer Seamus Coleman and Leighton Baines were linked away to all of the bigger clubs in the, uh, all of the, the higher achieving clubs in the Premier League, and Everton managed to hold on to both of them. Yes. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of why that is, uh, and I'm sure there are lots of contributing factors, and I'm sure a big part of that will be the players' desire to continue playing for Everton. But I, I think that's a it's a great standout example to me of uh, one club managing to uh, managing to sustain such a high level of fullback. I mean, there were there was a season or two there where Everton had the best fullbacks in the league. Oh yes, right. and and I would say consistently over the last, like you say, probably the last six, maybe seven seasons. Mm. If you were to pick a fullback pairing that were consistently at in in the top three of you know they would always be there yeah uh, and in terms of in terms of the number of assists that they provided I mean that's partly because of Leighton Baines free kick taking for example but yeah. you know they really really were very very good and Coleman yeah. Coleman's only thirty although he did lose much of a season after that horrible leg break mm. um, so yeah I mean that you know they're, they're very, very capable players. Great lads. <laughs> Great lads. Banter lads. <laughs> so I'm just trying to bring the, the tone down a little bit. Sure. Um, I mean, if Everton were in the market for somebody, and as I say, I really don't think they need to be, but someone like Alexander Hack, who's at Mainz, again, defensively very sound, good in the air. He's left-footed as well, which is a bonus. Um, what You're looking to create a complementary pairing, really. There are certain things that they should both be good at, like any defender should be good at heading, any defender should be good football. at tackling. Ideally good at football, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's likely that one of your players is going to be more progressive, more technical, more likely to carry the ball. The other one is going to be more solid, more covering, more of a stopper. So that's the sort of partnership that you want to look for, I would suggest. But Everton... Don't really need to buy anyone. Okay, Alberto Diaz, I hope you enjoyed the answer to that question. The next question is from Apolita1987. You often talk about a player's, quote, ceiling. And, and you've done it in this podcast. Have I? Yes, you have. You, well, I've noticed you saying it a lot more recently. I thought maybe you read it in a, a dictionary or something. <laughs> How do you determine what somebody's ceiling is? And that question is from Apolita1987. Yes. So... Um, the honest answer is you don't, mm. you guess. Mm. And you always sound so certain. <laughs> you said something on last week, is it last week's podcast maybe? And I, forgive me, I can't remember the, the, the specific reference, but you said, this player has a higher ceiling than the other player. Yeah. And I thought I'd love to interrupt now and ask him how he knows how that. He knows that. And yes. Apolita 1987 is clearly had the same psychic. thought. Yeah, sure. That was, that was Longstaff and McTominay and Rice, wasn't it? Yes, was that it conversation. was. Yes, yeah. it was. So I think there are certain things from which you can take stronger inference. Yeah. So, for example, the earlier or younger a player is doing certain things, yeah. the more confident you can be that, that that will be maintained and improved. So in that re- regard, for example, 
even though I'm not a massive fan of his, I would say that Declan Rice has a higher ceiling as a defensive midfielder than Sean Longstaff because he's three years younger and he's established himself much more quickly in a Premier League side. So that would tend to indicate that overall he's likely to become a better player or maintain a level that is higher. Mm-hmm. Um, Wayne Rooney, for example. The fact that Wayne Rooney was doing certain kinds of things, and I think most interestingly with Rain, Wayne Rooney, the two things that were crucial, obviously he was a technically gifted player, but physically his development was in... What's the way? I don't want to say in excess because that makes it sound like he was fat, but he was more physically developed. 90s indie band. Right. He was more physically developed than you would expect a 16 year old to be. Oh, yeah. That helps. He he had some heft. He was a big lad. Um, Also, the confidence to try and do certain things. Audacious, they say. Absolutely. Mm. So that bespeaks a player who is thinking. I'm just going to fucking try that. And, yeah. and that is something... I'm going to have to that, tick that language box now when we release this podcast. Would you like we, me to We got so far it. through. No, it's fine. <laughs> okay. It's fine. Um, We're all mostly adults here. I think there are other things. So, for example, there are certain leagues that if, if a player has come through, um, you know, League Two, for example, in France or certain clubs in the Portuguese Primera that you can make rough guesses about how they might go on and do based on how other players that have come through with similar sorts of numbers have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other players who come through, I don't know, maybe the the Croatian league or the Serbian league or whatever, where there are really great talents and prospects, but maybe they don't always develop with the same degree of consistency or certainty. Um But the issue that you have is that there are myriad things that can interrupt a player's development. So that might be going somewhere where the manager doesn't like you, if a transfer is foisted on a manager, if the club changes manager, if the player gets injured, if the player doesn't settle, if the manager wants to play a system or a formation that doesn't suit that player. Mm -hmm. So, so many different reasons. Add into that fact that when you're talking about a player's ceiling, you're generally speaking talking about a player who is 21 or younger by and large, um, because most players probably reach roughly the level that they'll be at by about 24, 25. Are you saying I've already reached my ceiling? Probably, oh, yes. No. Sorry. that That's not to say that those players can't show improvement in the sense of if they start playing with better players, their level will probably rise, mm. but that'll be a reflection of the system that they're working within rather than them yeah. actually innately getting better as that players. That is situational. I would suggest so. It's a team sport. By and large, yes. Okay. Um, so, you know, those younger players are obviously more likely to have things go wrong with them than older, more established pros. And this goes back to that question that we had at the beginning about why teams are willing to spend vast amounts of money on teenage prospects. And you can look at someone like an Mbappe, for example, who had been consistently performing in a certain way, in a certain style at Monaco, and think that is a pretty safe bet. Now, whether that's a 133 million euro safe bet or not becomes a a different question. But Mm -hmm. it's, I think there is perhaps a certain recklessness in the market around whether or not those kinds of players will develop. And and judging a player's ceiling is a really, really difficult thing to do. Another stat from um, the 21st Club book, this one, I'll hold it up again, uh, is that if you look, I, th- I can't remember the time period they used, but it was a good sort of five or six years. If you look at each player's record signing during that period Mm. they only had a sort of 55 56 percent chance of becoming a first team regular which is a better than average chance by a little bit but is still saying that actually you can spend a huge amount of money on somebody even if they're not a young player and it just doesn't work out so when you're then dealing with younger players obviously there's a degree to which the eye and the numbers can tell you that they are more likely than others to make a good player, but there's still so many variable factors in it. It's really, really hard to suggest, which is why I would be more comfortable saying that player X has a higher ceiling than player Y rather than player X's ceiling is, you know, winning Mm. La Liga. Yeah. Okay. The final question is from the Jace 45. Hmm? Uh, The Jace 45 asks, 
How much importance do you put on a wingback's ability to attack and defend in modern systems? And are they potentially the most important position to fill? Now, the Jace 45, we've spoken about this at length uh, before. I think we did a whole podcast on fullbacks and a video uh, specific to Manchester City uh, a while back. Um, this is a good opportunity, whilst we're talking about videos, to tell you listening that if you would like to look at our faces as we speak and watch the sounds fall out of our mouths, you can find us on the TIFO podcast uh, YouTube channel. Also, we've got some very exciting things coming up on the TIFO football uh, channel. Uh, one or two more sensible transfer videos before the season begins. Um, but also, if you are listening to us via your ears, audio only, please do subscribe please leave us a positive comment. That's very nice. Please don't leave us a negative comment because I, I get upset. <laughs> I get a little bit upset sometimes. What can I say? If you get me at the wrong moment, you know, a crippling lack of self-confidence sometimes. Um, but do subscribe, leave a nice comment, leave us a great rating, uh, you know, give some money to my mother. And uh, Alex, can you answer the Jace's question, which was how much importance do you put on wingback's abilities to attack and defend in modern systems? And are they potentially the most important position to fill. How much time do I have? Uh, I'm going to give you three minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so I've put extremely. <laughs> that's, Is that your research? That's my notes. Yeah. Um, there are, as I mentioned, and there's a good a stats bomb article uh, on this. Um, we can link that in the description. By, who's it by? Who's it by? Who I, is it by? Well, it's by stats bomb. It's by, anyway, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Find it. Uh, it's by Grace Robertson. Grace Robertson. Um, who is really good, and you should follow them on Twitter. Okay. Um, basically, there are, by and large, four types of modern fullback slash wingback. Mm. Um, you're looking, Can I guess? Uh, go for it. The dog, the the rhinoceros trampler, Travers, and the Kelly brothers. Is that right? Okay. So you've got your quintessential defensive fullback. Yes. That's the sort of person you'd expect to find in a flat back four. Is that or, Dennis Irwin? Um, Dennis Irwin was a bit better than that. Okay, but it's, sure. it's your sort of, you're more limited, like a Burnley fullback, or maybe an Atletico Madrid fullback if you're being a bit unkind. Okay. It's that, it, you know, hold the position, yeah. keep a back four, needs to be good in the air, not give the ball away, probably boots it long down the line quite a lot. Uh-huh. That's one style. Obviously, super important if you're playing that kind of back four and you're expecting your natural width to come from natural wingers. Branislav Ivanovic, but with less marauding. Yes, okay. that kind of style. Sure. Um, then you have the marauding fullback slash wingback. So again, okay. we're talking about either fullbacks in a back four like uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andrew Robertson, uh-huh. um, the ones who will get forward. Now, particularly with the increase of inverted wingers, either in a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, where players cut inside and push towards the goal, these overlapping fullbacks have become super important. Obviously, they're not just getting forwards to supply crosses. They're also defending against the same sort of attack or even natural wide players. They need to have huge athleticism. They need to be able to cross the ball. They need to be positionally aware and disciplined. They have to be linking with Mm. centre-backs, midfield and attacking players. They have to have a really good understanding of the shape and system as well. Very, very difficult to find the highest quality of those, but they can make or break a team. Uh, You then have the two sort of slightly Guardiola-y inventions. So the inverted fullback which would be someone like... Uh, Philip Lahm. Philip, yeah, or Joshua Kimmich. Same sort Yuzua. of thing. Yuzua. The, Yuzua. The yes. same kind of, you know, where where they're not necessarily looking to use extreme pace, but they are bulking out the midfield because there's enough attacking stuff going on. So they, they, they're part of the defensive and build-up phase is actually moving up and in slightly. Mm. And then you have uh, like Cesar Espelicueta at Chelsea or you have Carl Walker for England during the World Cup where you're basically taking somebody who is naturally a fullback, putting them into a back three, but then where they're working as a kind of an auxiliary centre-back so they're alongside more natural centre-backs but they will take more of a role in ball progression, in carrying the ball and add a greater degree of dynamism from a back three Mm. because actually what they're used to is carrying the ball forwards a bit more. So 
They are incredibly important because these various tactical innovations have meant that there is a versatility expected of fullbacks a lot of the time that makes it a difficult, particularly difficult yeah. position to play. And could you say as well that they are often these roles that you are describing, with the exception of the first one, they are the importance of a player on the pitch doing those things has kind of has, has sort of overflowed onto the role of fullback as tactics elsewhere on the pitch have become more complex. So as you have inside forwards yep. pushing in, you still need the winger. So yep. now it, who, who can do that? Well, the fullback can do that. Yes. If you've got the midfielders pushing up, well, you need something in the middle. Who can do that? Well, the fullback can do that. Because traditionally the fullback was, and I do not say this to denigrate anybody, but in my experience of playing football, it was always the position where you went if you were shit. <laughs> That's what it was. Or, you know, if you were yeah. fat like me, you went in goal. Yeah. That was, that, that was it. I, and, I, and I think what you, you know, you do see players now um, moving back down the pitch as they, as they get higher up in level. Mm. They, they start life as a winger and they end up as a, a higher quality fullback. Um, I think you're right in terms of the tactical uh, imperative there, because if you look at formations like a midfield diamond or even a narrow 4-3-3, there is a lack of natural width there because you've got uh, either two front players and then a midfield diamond or you've got inverted wingers. Mm. One way of solving that is to say, well, it's not working because there's not enough natural width. The yeah. other way of solving it is to say, well, the natural width has to come from somewhere and the place where we're widest is our back four. So those are the guys that are now pushing up. So I, I, I yep. think that's absolutely right. Also, what's an interesting thing to think about is that in the women's game, uh, Phil Neville kept referring to Lucy Bronze as yeah. potentially the best player in the world. She is a fullback. And that is something that we are unfamiliar with maybe th throughout uh, modern history of football, the idea that the best player in the world might play at fullback. But the way in which you describe it, pr and probably not just because... Uh, the best player in the world tends to be the player who can either assist in or score the most goals, the most valuable thing in the game. That might be the 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 the, the barrier that prevents that from being the case. But when you think about the level of adaptability that you have to have to play in that position, uh, you would expect that in a modern football team, particularly like a Guardiola team, the fullbacks might be the most intelligent footballers on the pitch. And and I think you see that with people like Lam and Kimmich, absolutely. Mm. That you know they are they're super smart players, and they can do a variety of different things. A very interesting point in terms of how you categorise the best player. You know whether it is that you know Messi's the best because he scores the most goals, or actually the best player is the one who contributes most successfully to how their team functions. Well, again, and, it's a team sport, is, right? There is a, a question around that, and there's different ways of rating best. I mean, if you look at the way Lucy Bronze played for England, the way that she was able to to defensively tie up that right-hand side, but also would make driving runs inside if Nikita Paris was playing wider on the right, could overlap if Paris was cutting in, would move into the midfield area to bolt that out if you know Jill Scott got caught out of position in the right half space. There was an awful lot that she was able to do and she crop up and, and score pretty amazing goals. So in that regard, yeah, yes, I, I would take Phil Neville saying that she's the best player in the world with a slight pinch of salt because sure. there's also, you know, kind of positivity and mind games going on there. But her ability to do three or four different things that maybe 10 or 15 years ago you would expect to have three or four different players doing. Mm. The fact that she could do all of that yeah. did make her extraordinarily important for how England played. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I, I would say in answer to the Jace45's question, um, it's, it's incredibly important. Are they the most important position to fill? I would say depending on tactically how sophisticated you are, then quite possibly, but... Not in my team. If you're a Burnley, no, really. There, it's probably your centre-forward. Just to be clear, though, we don't but, denigrate Burnley when we no, say no, no, that. No, 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 absolutely yeah. not. No, no. Uh, if you're Atletico Madrid, like an incredibly good side, the, mm. their most important player is probably still either their 9 or their 10. But for a lot of teams, you know, for Liverpool, for example for that Liverpool side mm. to work properly. Who holds the key to unlock the chain of combination? They they are so crucial that if you didn't have players of their calibre mm. filling those roles, that whole system would not function as effectively. Yeah. Okay. That's as definitive as I'm prepared to be. That's fairly definitive. 
well, thank you to everyone who submitted questions for today's episode. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed listening to it. I, d- I think I might call this Sensible Transfers Broad Concepts. Does that make sense? You're in charge. One step back. But as I said, if, you've, uh, if you're the sort of person who's going to shout at me anyway, it's unlikely you've made it to the end of the podcast. But uh, yeah, the title, I have no idea what to call this. It might not reflect what it actually is. I'll do my best. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening. We will be back next week. We've got some exciting news to, uh, to announce in a, in a week or two's time as well, which is going to be fun. And uh, we have a few guests lined up to come on the podcast to talk to us about various different things. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Spread the love. Tell your friends about us. Uh, tell your parents, children, um, what other uh, postman? I was talking to my postman this morning. Lovely guy. Do you Mil- want to hear a, milkman. A, quick, uh, a quick story about my postman? And it yeah, just gives sure. it a little a little insight into me and my personal life. It, it wasn't this morning. It was yesterday morning. And uh, for people listening, yesterday was the hottest day of all time, I think it was. Uh, or it was supposed to break records. 37, 38 degrees in London. Very warm. Hmm? And I was sat at my front door and uh, trying to cool down. And the postman, who I like, comes along. He's delivering post to the next house. And I said, hey, man, how's things? You know, and he said, oh, it's great. There's some honeys out there. I thought he was talking about bees. <laughs> I genuinely, I genuinely replied and said, what, is there a lot of bees? <laughs> he was, he was talking about uh, attractive oh, I, Yeah, people. no, I know what he yeah, was yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah. But it just went right over my head. I thought he was talking about bees. And I, I think, said, is, I there, is there a nest nearby? very well on you. Should I be worried about the bees? Should I close the windows? You know? But dude, tell, you, tell your postman about TIFO. And uh, watch the videos. What else? Have we got anything else to say? Um, no. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Goodbye.